0: Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. All right. Hello, everybody. It's Ben, and I'm going to be doing an Edamame episode today on the new Ghostbusters movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife. This movie uh, came out uh, very recently. Uh, I think it was advertised pre-pandemic, maybe, or teased, pre-pandemic, and sort of delayed and hung up, and I I don't remember exactly what all the details were. Uh, To be honest, I'm not a a huge Ghostbusters fan. I, I... did really like the first movie. The second one was less good, uh, but still kind of uh, lovable in its way. Um, but they kind of just felt like standalone films from their time. Uh, the first one especially, I think, was a lightning in a bottle type situation with uh, with the cast, the subject matter, and it was just decidedly silly and really just leaned right into that uh, successfully. Um, really, really worked well that way. This movie is not that. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife takes place in roughly modern day. And uh, the premise of the film is, and I'm not spoiling much here. Well, let me say this. Spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about what happens in this movie. If you haven't seen it and don't want it spoiled, uh, then you need to not listen to this episode yet. Uh, Listen to it maybe uh, after you've seen it. Spoiler alert has been issued and it's on you now. Uh, Anyway, so the, the premise of the film is that Egon Spengler after at some point after the ghostbusters such as they were um dispersed moved to i think oklahoma and uh set up a shop in this uh broken down decrepit farmhouse then in in some sort of in the introductory scene we're seeing him uh engage in some kind of uh, race uh back to the farmhouse being chased by an unseen um pursuer and he is trying to catch whoever's pursuing him which we presume is a ghost of some kind and it doesn't work and he he like hits a button and his his mechanism to catch the ghost fails and he is uh then uh, later found dead we are then introduced to his granddaughter who is separated or divorced it's not clear which but she's raising two kids on her own one is played by uh finn wolfhart from um stranger things the other is played by a newer young actress who uh, i can't remember her name now but um, she's kind of the highlight of the film, and the, the movie is really about her. She plays maybe a, I don't know, 10-ish old girl, I would guess. Um, somewhere in that range, 10 to 12, maybe. Uh, and she is one of the typical uh, cinema brilliant kids. She is smarter than everybody else in her class and understands advanced Uh, scientific and mathematical principles. She's a bit introverted, kind of a nerd, Um, has a little bit of trouble making friends, Uh, very candid and direct, and uh, provides a lot of uh, good dry wit to the movie, uh, which I thought was fun. And the story is really her story of kind of discovering her grandfather, that's Egon, uh, discovering his legacy at the farmhouse, and then slowly unraveling, uh, you know, what he was working on, what he was doing. That's about the first two thirds of the movie is that plot. And her her teacher at school is Paul Rudd, who is like a, like a, a substitute teacher, I guess, teaching summer school maybe. And he's like super phoning it in. He's just having them all watch like '80s horror films. He has them watch um, Chucky, e and and then the mom is sort of underdone. Um, She's she's well-acted, uh, well-directed, I'd even say, but the screenplay doesn't have much for her to do. She sort of is between jobs, uh, kicked out of her apartment, decides to move into Egon's decrepit house to, just to kind of figure out what she's gonna do to get her life together. But we don't really see her ever do that. She's just sort of there. Uh, we don't see her going to get a job or trying to figure out how she's gonna get her family out of this town or she's gonna try to integrate her family into this town. Uh, so the, the mom character, I've, it's kind of strange what exactly She's doing what her motivations are, what her what her goals are. Um, she's really just sort of a a uh, pawn on uh, the the chessboard of this plot, and and really it's just, this is a typical kids doing adventures movie. And unlike a lot of films that deal with the problem of kids always having cell phones, where well, they just set it in the eighties. Uh, this one is set now, so they you know they have to kind of write around that. It'd be way too easy for the daughter, uh, the granddaughter, to you know just go to her mom to get her out of trouble, but. Uh, so the film deals with that by having this house, this farmhouse, be really far away, no cell phone coverage, uh, and makes the girl young enough that she probably would not would not have a phone. And uh, that makes that all pretty simple to deal with. Anyway, like I said, that's the first two-thirds of the movie. That part is really fun. We, we are slowly reintroduced to various, uh, what I would call, iconography of the Ghostbusters franchise. Uh, the daughter finds Egon's hidden lab, discovers uh, his old proton pack, discovers one of the, uh, the little meters to detect the presence of ghosts, and also we learn that Egon's ghost is itself uh, somehow in the house. Which was kind of a nice way to introduce the Egon character without having um, the late Harold Ramis available. They do that by having you know an unseen ghost basically move things around to help the granddaughter character figure out um, what's going on. So there's a scene where she's trying to reassemble the proton pack, and there's a, a lamp, like a Pixar you know arm lamp and the lamp keeps moving around and, you know, gesturing and pointing towards different things. And we're, we're made to believe that that's Egon helping out his granddaughter, who is nonplussed by all of this. Um, she's a, a little alarmed at first when, uh, like she goes to bed at the start of the movie in the new house, and there is a chessboard next to the bed that's all set up. She makes a move and then wakes up the next morning and um, the other side has moved. Like that, that, to me, that's that's really good visual storytelling very predictable the minute she makes the move you know what's going to happen and um i I would kind of hope to see them do that more of that more slowly like she makes a couple moves over a couple of days and then the pace of the game starts to increase where she actually sees the pieces moving which does eventually happen but like the the next day she sees the pieces moving and then like something explosive happens you know one of the pieces is knocked off the chessboard violently uh it's all good for like a, a kind of a you know cheap jump scare but I really thought, I really wish they had taken this whole concept of the daughter rediscovering Egon's work and, you know, following up on it and completing it. It should have been the whole movie. Uh, and they could have pasted out a little bit more and let the chessboard kind of be a, a proxy for the overall narrative. I thought the chessboard might somehow be how Egon ultimately explains how to do something for her, maybe using like chess notation or something like that to move the pieces and like spell out a word. Uh, no, nothing like that happens. It's not that clever. E- Egon's ghost eventually knocks the chessboard over. And I think that's, the end of the, of the the you know the chess subplot. So um, there's a lot of missed opportunities in the movie uh, of, of that sort where they kind of introduce an interesting plot element, do a couple of things with it, and then it's gone. Anyway, so everything in the movie kind of progresses in a pretty interesting and compelling manner right up until there's a scene where Paul Rudd's character, who is kind of the stand-in uh, for Rick Moranis' character, uh, Lewis from the original movie, his character at some point goes to a Walmart and all of a sudden there's like stay puff marshmallow bags on the shelf and little tiny baby stay puff marshmallow men start popping out of them. And then one of the, uh, the demon dogs, uh, like begins to terrorize the store and tear things apart. And during this entire scene, there's not a single other customer or Walmart employee to be seen anywhere. It's, it's, really really strange and the the transition from what was a sort of independent standalone film that had lovingly reincorporated known parts of the ghostbusters franchise and then expanded on them in a a mostly interesting way that just stops and all of a sudden it's like 40 minutes of the plot from the first story, it turns out that what's going on in the town is really just Gozer still from the first movie, and basically the first movie is then condensed down into a forty-minute format and shoehorned onto the end of this screenplay. It's it's and you, I'm I'm telling you, if you go see it, you'll know exactly when it happens. The tone of the movie changes, the feel of the movie changes, and it's it's just strange. And I and so I was not at all surprised when at the very end, the final confrontation. Guess who shows up? Uh, the three uh, living Ghostbusters are all there. Um, they somehow still have their uh, their jumpsuits and they somehow still have their roton packs. Bill Murray is Bill Murray. Uh, I don't think he could have been less interested in doing this. Um, his dialogue is... is Bad. Uh, I'm sorry. It's just bad. I love Bill Murray. I, I really do. But he is not even trying here. I don't know how many shovels or wheelbarrows full of money they had to get at him, uh, give to him, to get him to do this. But he he clearly doesn't want to be there and doesn't care. the The whole thing, uh, the end is just just strange. Um, you know, the Ghostbusters show up. They. They shoot Gozer, they cross the beams, you know, Gozer loses, and that's that's it. And uh, it's um, kind of disappointing, really. I mean, it was fun to see all the actors, don't get me wrong, uh, but that was just, it just felt like not even fan service. Just a, a complete failure of, um, I don't know, of, of imagination, of creativity. The plot that they had developed was actually not bad uh, for, you know, for a, a reboot film like this. Um, I understand using the the little girl as the main character that makes the the story kind of interesting to a new generation of of kids and viewers. Um, you know the, the original plot. If you go watch the original Ghostbusters, has quite a few adult themes, quite a few adult scenes, things that you could probably not get away with now, and that's probably a PG movie, PG thirteen at worst. There are some scenes if you go back and watch that uh, that I did not get when I was a kid. I get them now, and they were not appropriate. So. Uh, This movie doesn't have any of that. It is really leaning down into the younger audience. And then, you know, to that extent, it's pretty well constructed. Like I said, right up until um, they just suddenly switch gears and go in a completely different direction with it the other thing about the film that i I both liked and didn't like is the over-reliance on the things we know from prior ghostbusters movies and this kind of goes back to my criticism of the star wars sequels which felt like it just took imagery from the original star wars trilogy put it into a blender and then pulled it back out again in a different order and made a movie out of it this movie does some of that too it's the same proton packs they have ecto-1 is back which is, you know, it's the Millennium Falcon of the Ghostbusters franchise. It's an iconic vehicle. So they, they do expand on it a little bit. But otherwise, the film has the sort of usual problem of, here's all the things you remember from the first film. Oh, look, here it is again. Aren't aren't you excited you get to see these things again in a movie? And where that really comes to a head is at the very end, Egon is trying to, I guess, trap or, or kill Gozer. And so rather than just build a big trap, you know, a, a Gozer-sized trap, I guess the, re- the regular traps aren't strong enough. I don't know, they don't really explain it. They're supposed to all open at once, I guess, and catch Gozer that way. Why would you do that? Like, why would you build 50 different little traps and then spread them all over the place? I don't know, it, it, it looked cool, but as I'm watching it, I in the back of my head, I was just thinking, this is kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, it's been 30 years, and so he's just reusing the same stuff again that he was using in the 80s. I I, I don't know. That would just kind of, um, I don't know. It felt like lazy writing. Lazy writing to appeal to fans who want to see the, the same stuff again that they already know. I'll also make a note. This is a, a, a big spoiler, but if you've read anything about this film, you know it already. At the very end, they have a scene where three living Ghostbusters are there, and then the granddaughter of Egon is helping them to catch the ghost with her own gun. And uh, we see her struggling, and then you kind of get the hint of, like, a hand reaching around from her side, like a ghost hand, to, like, like, steady her arm and hold her up. At that point, I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's neat, right? Like, we're seeing, it's a way to incorporate Harold Ramis uh, into the movie, in, in a way, uh, incorporate the Egon character, but without being, like, over the top and cheesy about it. And I, I really I really liked uh, that, that idea to have Egon kind of, you know, supporting her that way. But... <laughs> Then they just kept materializing Egon until there was a fully present Egon Spangler CGI Harold Ramus ghost character like standing next to her and behind her, and I thought, okay, well that's you know that's that's a bit much. It kind of takes away from the I guess the, the artistry of the scene. Like, oh look, oh there he is. And I thought, okay, well he'll 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 put him there so we see him. Okay, that's great. That's audience you know nostalgia. But, but then it just keeps on going. And, like, they have the Harold Ramis ghosts, like, walk around and, and hug everybody. And I think uh, Bill Murray even says, nice to see you again or something like that. It's, it's, it's borderline fourth wall breaking. They know what they're doing, and they know why they're doing it, right? We... You know th- those of us who love the movie or who just uh, liked uh, Ramus as an actor you know it was a chance to kind of get to see him again that that idea was neat I liked it much better though when they were more subtle about it um because it's not it's not Harold Ramis, you know it's obviously it's not it's a, it's a CGI character you know the, the the fourth wall breaking kind of say what what we're all thinking as the audience I think could have been handled with a little more uh subtleness uh, a little more uh deft this this was just really really broad I I'm, I'm probably in the minority there I get the impression from what I've seen on social media that Most people really, really liked that, really liked seeing uh, the Egon character brought back, to see Harold Ramis brought back. Which we should also, we may do an episode on this at some point, but it raises questions about how rights of publicity work in films like this with deceased celebrities. Uh, this happened with Peter Cushing. They brought uh, Tarkin back for uh, Rogue One. It happened with Carrie Fisher as well. Although I think Rogue One may have come out before she died. I don't remember now. But uh, anyway, they CGI'd uh, Princess Leia into the end of Rogue One. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. And then now this with Harold Ramis. Um, you know, h- how do they get to do that? How do they get the rights to do that? We'll, we'll do, you know, maybe we'll bring Charlotte back into an episode. And, uh, no. On how that works logistically because it's actually more complicated maybe than uh maybe it, it sounds so anyway yeah those are my thoughts overall if you if you like this kind of movie if you especially if you liked ghostbusters i think you'll probably be mostly satisfied by the film um i just it's not that it was bad i, I really i think it was a pretty decent movie despite the flaws at the end but it just it kind of it missed a lot of opportunities to be even even so much better the uh finn Wolfhardt's character doesn't have a ton to do here they kind of need an older brother character to to cart around the 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 lead character, the younger granddaughter, but they do virtually nothing with his story. Uh, that was, I think, a wasted opportunity as well. He's basically just there to not be an adult who has um, some sense of responsibility so we can have a, a kid adventure. So yeah, that, that character was underutilized. The mom character was, was really heavily underutilized. Paul Paul Rudd's character is kind of comic relief. Oh, and then there, there's another friend. Uh, the main character makes a friend whose, whose name is just podcast because he is obsessed with podcasting about like the paranormal and government conspiracies. I actually really got a kick out of this kid. Uh, He was super quirky, super goofy. He reminded me actually a little bit of... um I don't know. He he sort of had a, a a wisdom beyond his years and like his production value and, and how he can carried himself. I don't know, you, you'll have to see it and judge for yourself. But he was uh just always always cheerful and and fun and and ready with a quip. And I really would have liked to see more scenes with him and Paul Rudd's characters who played off each other really, really well. So I don't know what the kid's name is, and they never do give you his real name either. also interesting character. Like I said, movies just full full of promise, interesting ideas. They do a lot of, you know, I always talk about a setup and Payoff. You set up plot elements, and then you pay them off later. A lot of movies either have a payoff scene without setting something up, so you know something just happens and comes out of nowhere, and you're not really prepared for it as an audience. So it just feels like a you know a, a lazy writer escaping from a corner he's painted himself into, or you you know, you set something up and then never use it later uh, in the film. In which case, you know what, what was the point? The, the chessboard's like that. It's introduced to kind of teach us the audience that the house is, is kind of haunted, and we you know, we think we know why. Uh, And then we move on from that and never really use it again. And I think good movies make really good, efficient use, let's say good screenplays, make really good, efficient use of those plot elements. You know, not everything has to, you know, has to be tied into something else, but if you're gonna take the time to introduce a runner like the chessboard and the chess game, you know, do do more with it. It can do more to kind of teach the audience about what's going on. You know, you could even use the chessboard as kind of a countdown to when Gozer becomes activated or or comes back into the world. you know, there's, there's things you can do to dole out information to the audience in a way that adds plot tension, character development, story development. Good writing does that, and they, they, they tried to do that here. They started to do it, and then it just it just kind of all falls apart at the end, and they just shove a bunch of stuff you've seen before at you because they know it's going to make you happy to see it. And they're right. It did. But um, as, a, as a work of cinematic creativity, it, it kind of falls flat on, on those points. So. Anyway, that's it. I'm I'm belaboring the point now. I will stop. Uh, And that is uh, all for this episode. We'll have more for you soon. Uh, See you next time. Forum, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice, LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri.